Turn with me over to the book of Exodus. I'm going to speak on motherhood today, but from the perspective of what it means to ratify the covenant of God. The covenant of God is his promise to us of what he will do for us, through us, and with us. But it's also something we need to participate in in order to see all those things happen. And how we participate is prescribed in, in Scripture. The Old Testament, it was a thing called circumcision and then obedience. In the New Testament, it is complying with his will in terms of getting saved, baptized in water, and baptism in water is the New Testament version of circumcision, if you will, as seen in, in uh, Colossians chapter 2, verse 11 through 12, and then obeying his will every day. We're going to look at a, a family that had a difficult time trying to ratify their covenant the covenant of God in their lives. And it, it deals with Moses and Zipporah and then their kids. The title of this message is Ratifying the Covenant. Exodus chapter 4, verses 20 and 21, and then 24 through 26. Of Moses, it says, So Moses took his wife and his sons and mounted them on a donkey and returned to the land of Egypt. Moses also took the staff of God in his hand. The Lord said to Moses, verse 21, When you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power. Verse 24. Now it came about at the lodging place on the way that the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then, then Zipporah took a flint knife and cut off her son's foreskin and threw it at Moses' feet. And she said, You are indeed a bridegroom of blood to me. So, verse 26, he let him alone. At that time, she said, you are a bridegroom of blood to me because of the circumcision. Lord, help us as we study. Right about now, you're saying, well, Pastor Brett, it's Mother's Day, and you chose a passage on circumcision. <laughs> really good. Thanks. Um, we're we're going we're to go on a panoramic view here. We're not going to look at the institution itself of circumcision, but we're going to look at what it means figuratively for our own lives and see how this applies to everyday life for us. Background. The people of Israel have been enslaved in Egypt for the better part of 400 years. Moses has heard the call of God. He's supposed to go back and see the people delivered. This is, these folk are the covenantal folk of God. They are going to take the promised land. They are the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they've been in bondage to the Egyptians for almost four centuries. God says, Moses, I want you to go and I want you to see him delivered. You're going to be the principal that brings him out. Now Moses was not very compliant to this idea. He didn't like it. And he didn't like it for a couple of reasons. Back up the story a little more. Moses grew up in Egypt. But he didn't grow up on the Hebrew side of the Egyptian land. He grew up on the Egyptian side of the Egyptian land. During the time when he was birthed, Pharaoh had sent out a memo to all of the, of the midwives who were Egyptian to kill all the male Hebrew babies that were born because they were becoming so numerous in the land and he wanted to kill them. The Hebrew midwives loved God. They feared God and they said, we can't do this. Um, well, Jochebed, who happened to be Moses' mama, heard about this and she said she had the, the, 
the mercy of the Hebrew midwives, but once the midwives leave, then it's the responsibility of mama to, to protect the baby. She tried to protect Moses as best she could for three months until he started, ah, couldn't hide him anymore. And so she put him in a little, what they called an ark, which was a little boat, a crib that was, had pitch all over it and tar so that it was watertight, put him in the Nile River and let it float. The basket wound up at Pharaoh's home. The river ran right by Pharaoh's home. Pharaoh's daughter was outside bathing, saw the, the basket, said, oh, baby, took the child as her own. So Moses grew up in Pharaoh's house. Privileged he was, eating Pharaoh's food, getting Pharaoh's education, understanding the Egyptian language and culture. He was almost Egyptian, yet he was Hebrew. Somewhere in his adult life, teenage to adult life, his conscience is pricked or he develops one. I'm not quite sure. But he's mingling out with the populace and he sees a Hebrew slave being beaten by his, by his slave master, taskmaster. And he can't stand it. He realizes, I am Hebrew, though I've grown up Egyptian. And he takes the taskmaster and kills him, buries him in the sand. The next day, he goes back out thinking that he would now be a hero in, in Israel. And he sees two Hebrews fighting. And he says, stop that, you're brothers. And both of them look at him and say, oh, you think you're something because you killed a, an Egyptian? You're going to kill us like you killed him? All of a sudden, he realized he's garnered no favor with his own people for what he did. That one act of, of valor was not going to wipe out 40 years of hypocrisy. And now he got word that Pharaoh was mad at him for killing the Egyptian. So he didn't garner any affinity with the Hebrews, and now he's made himself an enemy of, of Egypt. He, he decides the best thing to do is get out of Dodge, so he runs. He's 40 years old, and he runs out in the wilderness trying to get away. He's a fugitive from justice, and he winds up in the land of Midian. I don't think that that was his target, but I think it was just some place where he could find respite. He's there at a well, and a woman comes to water the sheep, and he does some valiant things, and she's impressed, takes him back to daddy, and daddy looks at him and realizes this, this, is, this isn't just a wanderer here. This is, he's got royal garbs. He's got nobleman's garbs on. He speaks well. This is some, you want to get married? I got some daughters for you. And he gives his daughter to Moses. The daughter's name is Zipporah. Now, a little history about this man. This man's name is Jethro. He happens to be of the people of Midian, and he is a priest of Midian. The Midianites were people that came from one of the sons of Abraham. Now, Abraham happened to be the father of the faith. He is the Abraham of the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's a patriarch. Abraham had two sons in the beginning. He had one named Ishmael from Hagar, who was a maidservant. Then he had another named Isaac from his wife, Sarah. Sarah died. When Sarah died, he remarried a woman named Keturah. Keturah had at least five more sons. One of those sons was named Midian. All of Abraham's household had to be circumcised. It wasn't just for Isaac and Ishmael, but every son. So Midian believed in circumcision. Midian believed in the covenant. 
Midian was brought into the covenant because he was the natural seed of Abraham. Though the covenant for the land was not his, he was still initiated into the covenant of God. So Israel would have the land through Isaac, but the rest of them would have other property. If you look at Genesis 25, it says he sent his sons out with inheritance and blessing to take other pieces of property and land. And so they were all a part of the covenant, every one of them. They all believed in circumcision, and they all worshipped God. Transfer it down now a few hundred years, and we've got Jethro, who is a priest of Midian. He loves God. He gives godly counsel to Moses, even as the people are in the wilderness. He's a man of God. Can you believe this? Here is Moses having a godly call on his life. He winds up doing some things not as well as they should have been done in Egypt. They're out to get him. He's a fugitive. Nobody in Israel really likes him. He runs, and who does God have him run to but a pastor? How about that? To a pastor out of the wilderness. Jethro's a priest. And so there he is. Reminded of the covenant on a regular basis. Jethro is his long lost cousin. Distant, distant. He might be, but still related. So, 40 years pass. Moses is out there. He's now taking charge. He's the chief shepherd over all of Jethro's flocks. He's married Zipporah. And probably married them, married her really quick. I mean, there's no reason to wait and have a long engagement. You just get married. That's what you do. You're out there and you make it happen. And so he's been out there 40 years now. Most of you all have not worked in any occupation 40 years yet. This is a long time. And he has probably tried intentionally to forget about all of Egypt. Bad experiences back there. Nobody liked him on either side. That's done with, over. I don't want to have anything to do with it. I've got a new life here, started a new career. We can make this go. And all of a sudden, he sees a burning bush, but the bush is not being consumed. Now, this is the first time that God has used a supernatural sign to communicate anything of import. All the other times, to this point, all the other times he wanted to talk to somebody about doing something, he just talked. With Adam, he said, don't eat from that tree. Any other tree you can eat from in the garden. With Enoch, he talked with him so good, he just said, why don't you come with me? Just took Enoch. Just took him. I don't know what that means, but he took him. (laughs) Noah, Noah, he said, build me a boat. Abraham, he said, leave your people and come to the land I'll show you. Isaac, Jacob, he talked to everybody. No spectacular supernatural signs of communication at all. Just talk. But with Moses, he's got to do something like this. And and my sense is that God deviated from his standard operating procedure because Moses wasn't listening. See, when you've got things that, that, that make you adverse to what God wants to do in your life, but you know he's calling you to do it, you kind of, you turn the radio off. You're not trying to dial into what he's saying. And there's no question he felt this sense of destiny that he was called to do something great But he blew it by trying to pull it off on his own rather than really hearing from God. And now he thought it was over, it was done with. And he was trying to get on with his life outside of the covenant of God. Get on with his life without participating in his calling. And I'm convinced, because I know God and I know people, that the Lord was trying to say, hey, I'm still here. I'm not done with you. I'm still here. Come on, let's go. Time to go to Egypt. He wasn't listening. He wasn't trying to have any bit of it. And I'm convinced that his father-in-law was saying, you know, maybe there's a purpose for you. 
Maybe, I don't know what it is, but those people should be slaves over there. I don't think this was the first time he heard something about God wanting to free his people. I don't think so. But I do think this, that the only way sometimes God can get your attention is to do something unusual if you're not listening. Am I, am I talking to people who don't know anything about what I'm talking about? Like you've heard him every time, the first time. He didn't use circumstances. He didn't use finances. He didn't use health. He didn't use something supernatural that made you go, uh-oh, God's in this. Uh-oh, I got it. Oh, turn left, turn left. He did that with me many times until I tuned my ear to hear what he had to say. There's a bush burning here, but it's not being consumed. What in the world is that? So much so that it says Moses turned. And there's a turning in all of our lives. And then the bush began to talk to him. Now, when the bush is burning, not being consumed and talking to, you really ought to do what it says. I mean, just FYI, don't, 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 don't reject the bush. Bush says, God says, take your shoes off. You're standing on holy ground. And, and then he begins to give him instruction. My people in Israel, I've heard to cry. Time to deliver them. You're the man. Go. I don't think I'm the right guy. Who am I to go? I mean, remember Pharaoh? He didn't like me very much. Last time I left it, I'm just so quite sure that really. No, 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 no. Listen, it doesn't matter who you are. It's who I am. I am that I am. I'll help you in this. I haven't been able to speak. You know, I'm just not a very good orator. Now, this one's funny to me. First of all, God never told Moses he wanted him to preach. So why do you need oratory skills? Secondly, the man grew up in Pharaoh's house. He knows Egyptian. He knows Hebrew. And you are trained to speak well if you are a noble. If you're a nobleman, you're trained to speak well. What do you mean I don't know how to speak? And if you break it down, Moses, I'm only asking you to say four words. Let my people go. You can't say that. You can't say that, Moses. You can't say that. Tell me you can't say that. <laughs> the boy was trying to get out of the job. And he didn't want the job. God says, who made man's mouth? Come on, Moses. Come on. And he kept saying no. He said, listen, I'm sending your brother Aaron. He'll be your mouthpiece. That got him in trouble. Aaron got him in trouble. Aaron's a good man, but he got him in trouble. And so he goes. And this is where we pick up in chapter 4. Three points. One, we have a reluctant father. Two, we've got a requiring God. And three, we've got a responsive mom. A reluctant father, a requiring God, and a responsive mom. It says in Moses, picked up his family, put him on donkeys. And he, he, he picked up his staff. But, but there's one obvious thing he didn't pick up, and that's his flint, his knife. Now remember, Moses has been out in this wilderness for 40 years. If they got married in year two or three, they just had babies. And so it's possible that their children or his child could have been somewhere in the neighborhood of mid-30s. And when it says donkey, the word donkey in Hebrew is like we use the word sheep in English. It's plural. We don't say sheeps or deer. We don't say deers. 
the A there, the definite article, is used to help us understand that it's not usual for this in English for us to say donkey and mean plural. And so it says a donkey. But in Hebrew, there is no definite article. And it actually means that there were probably multiple donkeys, which would make sense because if Moses and Zipporah got married early, their son was probably in his 30s and would not have been on the same donkey as his mama. Would have needed his own donkey. And there may have been sons. So here we have a family riding off in a very small caravan to Egypt. And Moses is being responsible. He's taking his family with him. He's not trying to leave his family. Good for him. And he's got his staff with him. Staff represents protection. That's how, he find, that's how a shepherd fends off wolves and bears. Represents direction as well. But he forgot his knife. Forgot his knife, his flint. Dads, for the most part, who have not been trained in how to discipline their children and to, to raise them the way they should, think, all I need to do is to make sure they got food on the table. They got a roof over their head. They got clothes on their back and an education. That's my job. I let mama do everything else. Mama takes care of the discipline. Mama takes care of the spanking. Mama takes care of all the details in the house, when they're supposed to come in, when they're not supposed to go, where they're not supposed to go. But I just, I do the general stuff. I don't do the particular stuff. And we think if we have provided like that, we have done our job. When God says to Abraham, I have called you in Genesis 18 that you might teach and train your children in justice and righteousness so that they can follow after me. You wonder why in the world God chose Abraham. Why this guy out of the bunches of folk that were on the planet, why Abraham? And God says it in Genesis 18, because I can't find anybody who will train his kids like you. At that time, he had none. So how did God know? Well, God knows a lot of stuff we don't know. But practically, it could be that Abraham, because he had 318 men, men trained in his house. So these were servants that cared for his sheep, his cattle, did his tailoring, his cooking. 318 guys. These were his employees. Abraham was not poor. That man has some wealth. He was a traveling community as they went throughout the promised land. But when they were called to go rescue his nephew Lot, who had been taken captive along with Sodom and Gomorrah by four other kings, it says that Abraham went out with his 318 men in combination with a man named Mamre and uh, I can't remember the other guy. And they went to war with all these other people groups to rescue his nephew Lot. This is the first war we have in the Bible. First war. If you, if you can make a chef a warrior, you can make a tailor a warrior and convince them to go fight for somebody they don't even like. I mean, Lot wasn't anybody's favorite. This was a man that fought against Abraham, against Abraham's property. He came to Abraham and said, listen, there ain't no property here for my sheep need to eat and your sheep eating my sheep's grass. Wait, 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 wait. It's Abraham's land. God gave it to him. You are privileged just to hang around. You are with the principal hinge of history here. Be happy. 
If your sheep are a little bit lighter than his, that's okay. You are incredibly blessed, boy. Go home and be quiet. No, no, he was fighting. And Lot being, excuse me, Abraham being the man he was, says this, listen, I ain't going to fight, fight over, I'm not going to fight with you over this land. You choose what you want, I'll go the other direction. When God gives you something, you can't even give it away. If somebody tries to take it, it'll boomerang back to you. Lot went and chose this piece of property, prettiest. Abraham went the other direction, and God told him right after that, meaning Abraham, he said, look up, open your eyes. You see all this? It's yours. Even though he had given Lot that, God said, uh, don't worry about that. I give it to you. It's yours. He, he might be renting it for a minute, but it's yours. They didn't even like Lot. And so when Abraham said, we got to go rescue Lot, I imagine most of them said, who? <laughs> that boy went down there. He went down there and t- he knew he wasn't supposed to go there. He fought with us. He had it made here. He went down there, got himself taken captive. You want us now to go? I got a wife and child at home. Why should I risk my life for him? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Tell us what we need to do. And they strapped it on and fought and beat five kings. Four or five kings, I can't remember. 318 men. 318 men. So God knew, this boy can train. Let me give him some kids. Let's see what he can do. Dads, our responsibility is to train, not just to provide, to train. Problem was that Moses didn't look like he was very good at this. Now it says that his sons weren't circumcised. Circumcision was the institution that confirmed the covenant of God in the earth. God said, I love you. I'm going to provide for you. I'm giving you these promises. You're going to come into something great. You are my people. But I require something back. In order to ratify the covenant, you have to do something too. Now, it doesn't mean that when we do it, i.e. New Testament, that somehow that act makes us saved. When we ratify the covenant in the New Testament, all we're doing is is coming into what God has already done. But he always requires participation for us to benefit from what he has done. If we're going to be saved, it's not just what Jesus has done. It's also what we have agreed to in saying, I choose to die with you in it. My decision and my will are now yours. So we agree to come into what he has already completed. We don't exact or perform our own salvation. We simply participate in what he has done. And what he says in the Old Testament is, you will complete circumcision as a confirmation of my covenant with you, my promises for your goodwill. Moses didn't do that. Now, we don't know exactly why Moses did not circumcise his sons. But here are some possibilities. Egypt believed in circumcision, but they didn't believe in it for covenantal reasons. There was no promise that they had with God. It was just for sanitation reasons. He also was with Midian that believed in circumcision. But there's something about Moses that didn't didn't adopt either of that. He was born a Hebrew. He himself was circumcised. But he didn't do it on his son, maybe because of Egyptian reasons. And he surely had a good example with Midian in that they performed circumcision. So the only thing we can say is that Moses didn't just forget, he just rebelled. He didn't want to. I grew up in a, in a wonderful home in Kansas City. My mother and father were fabulous. I love my mother. Both of them are, are now deceased. They're great people. I could not have 
become who I am without them. I'll be forever in their debt. But my dad was not a God lover. He didn't know anything about the Bible. He um, messed up my, my, my home. The marriage was a, was a wreck, and it was his fault. Um, and so Mama and he divorced in 73, 74. And I was a teenager, 13 years old. And um, I had to figure out what it meant in my teenage years to be a man. Dad wasn't around. Mama was raising me, my sister, and my brother. My sister's 15 months younger. My brother's four and a half years younger. <clears throat> and um, Mama was the one who took us to church. She was the one that did all the discipline. My dad was the kind of dad I explained to you earlier that believed if he just provided, that was his job. And he provided us a good home. We grew up in Kansas City in white suburbia. Uh, and we were the only black folk in white suburbia. We broke the color barrier in our neighborhood, which was something that was huge back in the 60s. I broke the color barrier in my elementary school. They never had a black kid go there. And the looks that I had to endure and the names and the fights that I did not win, all of that, <laughs> I didn't. I was too small. I didn't win, but I fought. I mean, I fought. <clears throat> all of that was a part of the 60s in my upbringing. And my dad wanted us to have better than the inner city. And so he made a sacrifice. They wouldn't let us swim in the community pool. We couldn't join the country club. We couldn't even buy a house from a realtor. We had to go to a, a specific owner and buy a home. Wouldn't let us swim in the, in the community pool. So the next week, my daddy brought out a, a pool company, and there was a bulldozer in my backyard. And we were the only people in the neighborhood with a pool. <laughs> my daddy loved his kids, but he didn't know God. He went to every one of my football games, chartered planes to go to places like Lindsborg, Kansas, where I played football at a little school called Bethany. And they're, they're, United didn't fly there. And he came out on a crop duster to see me play. My daddy was phenomenal, but he didn't know God. And he didn't know how to discipline. He didn't know how to cut. He didn't know how to remove the wickedness from my life. He didn't know how to to whittle away all my wrong desires and teach me what it meant to make good decisions. He didn't know any of that. He didn't know the Bible. And I didn't know why my dad treated me the way he did until I sat with his father, my grandfather, on his deathbed as he was passing from pancreatic cancer in 1984. I had the privilege of leading him to the Lord on his deathbed. Sat with him for two weeks, six hours a day. And I, I, I talked to him, and he talked back, and, and I said... Oh, I get it. My grandfather was tough. He was one of those go, boy, go, get, go get your own switch from the tree. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Go break off. And if, if, if it's too skinny, I'm going to beat you twice. <laughs> tough. He never knew how to say I love you. He didn't start even using the word love until we as kids, grandkids, kept saying at the end of our conversations on the telephone, I love you, and he didn't know what to say. And after about 10 years of constantly ending with that, he'd say, love you too. <laughs> but that's the way men were back then. That's the way they were. They didn't express any feelings. They didn't say he loved you. They might say it at the wedding, and that's it. That's the only time they're going to tell a woman they love them. Okay, I love you. It's fine. I said it once. You know it to be true. <laughs> I understood that my daddy didn't know how to discipline. He spanked me one time. 
One time. And then 10 minutes later came back and apologized. I couldn't understand. I wanted him to be everything I needed him to be, but he couldn't. And, and FYI, just parenthetically, stop blaming your parents. They came by whatever they came by honestly. They did the best they could. They may have been an absolute mess. But they gave you an opportunity to get to know Jesus. And you need to honor them. And it's only going to help you to do so. It'll help them a little, but primarily you. Because he says when you honor your mother and father, you do it and your days become long on the earth and it goes well with you. So I said, I got it. And daddy left all the discipline to mama. See, I, I grew up in Moses' house. Daddy never picked up his knife. He never cut on my disobedience. He never whittled down my soul to understand what it meant to love God. He didn't drag me to church. He didn't teach me best practices. He didn't do any of that. Mama did. Mama did it faithfully. Mama wouldn't let me speak wrong. Mama was an English teacher. So I wanted to talk street and slang. I couldn't do it. She said, boy, you got to speak twice as well just to be heard. You know you're black. You're black. You got to speak twice as well just to be heard. Yes, ma'am. She drug us to church. She made us read our Bible. She told us what not to do. She taught us etiquette at the table. How we needed to hold our fork. Elbows not on the table. Which way the... The, the knife goes and the spoon and the bread plate. She cut on us all the time. We didn't care about any of it and we hated most of it. Always cut on us. I grew up in Moses' house. Daddy didn't cut on me. God was so angry at Moses. He said, I'm sending you to my covenant people who have all ratified the covenant in their own lives. Every one of them. And you got it ratified in your own flesh. You think I'm going to let you go down there without doing it in your sons and let that, that hypocrisy be known to all? Not happening. So though I called you, I'm going to kill you. Because Moses was dead. God was going to kill him. Now whatever he said to Moses in terms of I'm going to kill you, it was at least loud enough for Sephora to hear Wait, 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 wait a minute. Wait, Moses, Moses. Hey, 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 we got to talk about this. You're going to, God's going to kill. Why don't you fix this? This is fixable. We don't, you, you don't have to die. Just go circumcise, go cut on your boys. Tell them what they're supposed to do. Be the example they should be, you, you, be the example they need you to be. Help them understand what it means to be a man. Cut on them, please. You don't have, I need a husband. They need a daddy. Israel needs a deliverer. Fix this. Moses wouldn't. You know that conversation happened. Because remember how old these boys are now. 30-year-old man. That's not even a pretty picture. I don't even want to see what it's like for Zipporah to say, you going to make me do this? I, 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 that just, it messes my brain. I just... <laughs> and that's why Zipporah was so mad. She looked at him and said, you are a husband of blood to me. 
What's wrong with you? Why are you making me do this? The only way I can fix our family is if I do all the discipline. What's wrong with you, Moses? And mamas, I know it might be tough if daddies don't get a clue, but don't you quit. You take your knife out regularly. Today, we call it a Home Depot paint stick. (laughs) You ought to have it in your back pocket every day of your life. You got little ones running around. That's what you do. That's standard issue for every parent. And if you are not spanking your child, you are not parenting biblically. Now, I, I know my Hebrew. When it says in Proverbs 13, 24, if you spare the rod, you hate your boy. That's what it says. It doesn't say spoil. You spare the rod, you hate your child. And he who loves his son disciplines him diligently. Now, sparing the rod, the word rod can mean the words of your mouth. You can discipline with the words of your mouth. But it also means that little stick that they had, about 18 inches. Now, some like to say, well, you can use the word rod to describe verbal communication. Fine. I just choose to use all the definitions possible. I'm not leaving out one. You can take and choose as you want, but I'm using them all. So I'm going to discipline with the words in my mouth, and I'm going to have a little Home Depot paint stick in the back pocket so that when they mess up, whatever I do not communicate well with words, send sensory things up through their bottom, straight to their brain. Nerve endings go straight there, bypass everything else. I was the primary discipline, Aaron, in our home. I set the tone. Now, my wife is fabulous. We just had a Mother's Day moment in the last service. There is nobody like Cynthia. I told her last night, I said, I could not have had a better mother to help me raise my babies. You're the finest woman on the planet. And she's homeschooled for 21 years, every one of them. Seven kids, every one of them. She is amazing, amazing. And she's probably a much better parent than me in that she's less emotional. She's real stoic, just even keeled constantly. Me, I'm up. And when I'm, when I'm angry, my kids know. <laughs> I got some emotion. I, I came out honestly. That's way my mama. And, and, and I've had to learn some things about how to discipline my children. Because mama, I used a, I used a Home Depot paint stick. Mama just used anything close. <laughs> Belt, shoe, spoon. Whatever was close. And we didn't have training moments in the discipline. It was just getting beat. I'm not talking about abuse. I'm talking about righteous beatings. And, and, and it would sound so, I told you not to go outside. Get your behind back in here. Now, you, you got to... You got to know something about the African-American experience. Mama's spanked in rhythm. Everybody who's black knows what I'm talking about. You all know what I'm talking about. But I had to learn because my mother came with a lot of emotion, a lot of emotion, a lot of decibels, a lot of anger. 
There'd be three days or so where there was no conversation. <laughs> she was just so angry with me. And, yeah. So I had to learn what it meant to, to disassociate my displeasure with my child and then talk about what it meant for his benefit to discipline him and to raise him up properly in this moment. So no matter how I felt, I had to be a representative of Almighty God and a good Christian to my child. So I had to figure out how to do that. And so our disciplinary moments look something like, Son, you know what you did wrong? Yes, sir. What? Um, I shouldn't have stolen the Batman figurine and then thrown it at my brother's head. Yeah, you shouldn't have done that. Did you apologize? No. Go apologize to your brother. Yes, sir. Ask him to forgive you. Yes, sir. Tell him you won't do it again. Yes, sir. Go do it. Come back. Did you do it? Yes, sir. Did he forgive you? Yeah. You apologize? Yeah. You're going to do it again? No. What should you have done? I should have let him play with it and waited my turn. Good. Now, you're going you're, you're to get a spanking. <laughs> that, that, that's how dispassionate it was. That, I trained myself to do this. You're going to get a spanking. Because you, you just did wrong. So, tears are well up. Pants down. Pop, 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 pop. Come back. I pray for him. Lord, I pray you'd help my boy. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. This is exactly how it would go. Lord, I pray you'd help my son to understand how much I love him and you love him. And that I pray you'd help him to never do this again. In Jesus' name, amen. He'd say amen. We'd then have a moment where I'd say, son, I think, I think you're fabulous. There's nobody <laughs> like you. And I believe great things are going to be for you better than what you just did. And he'd walk away with complete restoration and hope. That's what God does with us. When we apologize, ask for forgiveness, and repent, restoration's immediate. But it goes through that process, even though that seems step-oriented, that's how you get to be restored. And there's none of this, I ain't going to talk to you for three days. I'm so mad at you, I don't know what to do with you. You make me just sick. Make me lose my mind. Put me on my last nerve. I had to learn that from scripture and other good parents that went before me that I saw in the church. And we would do that sometimes eight, nine, ten times a day with our children. So they, we set a tone for them in what restoration and discipline looks like that they might share in our holiness. God disciplines us in Hebrews 12 that we might share in his holiness. Parents discipline in an unholy manner. And when you do that, the children never have an opportunity to share in holiness. All they know is what they did wrong. I'm not getting into a parenting seminar, but I'm letting you know that this is what we did in our house. This is how I trained my children. Moses didn't do any of this. And so he left it to Zipporah. And she's sitting there looking, thinking, I can't lose my, I can't lose my husband. My babies can't lose their daddy. And Israel can't lose his deliverer. Okay. Come here, boy. Oh, mama, come on now. I can't. Mama, mama. Come here, boy. And I know it's difficult for you mamas to feel like sometimes you're all by yourself if you're a single mama or if you have a, a dad who is AWOL even though he's in the house. But I'm begging you, don't quit. 
I thank you for being the anchor in your house. When dad has to go on business trips and you're stuck there, I thank you for being the one who makes sure that the rudder is steady and that the direction is sure. And there comes a time when boys grow up and no longer is daddy authority. He's now advisor. You get a man who's grown, got his own household. Daddy can't tell him what to do no more. The only respect that daddy has is that which the child gives. Daddy can't take it. It's authority that is, that is given to the father, if there is any at all. So you become an advisor. But there's something different about mama. Mama's never an advisor. Mama can still tell a 35-year-old boy, get your elbows off the table. <laughs> Son still let mama cut on him. I don't know what it is, but it's that way. Never lose your knife, mama. Never. Because you don't know who you're saving. We know Moses as the deliverer of Israel. But who really? Who, who, who? We don't hear about Zipporah very much except in this passage. But had she not done what she did, there'd be no Moses. God would have killed him. That's with a T. <laughs> God would have killed him. So who again was the real savior of Israel? Boy, job. What a job. Your job, mamas, is huge. You don't know what impact your discipline today will have on the people tomorrow. Keep it up. Let's pray. Daddy, I love you. I thank you for your goodness. Help us to appreciate our mothers and to value them.